Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wall Street Skinny. I'm Kristen and I've got Jen here with me. Hi Kristen, I'm so excited for today's episode. Me too. Um, So we had a lot of really great viewer feedback from the explainer video you did, Jen, on First Republic Bank. And so just given the ongoing turmoil in the banking sector, it felt timely that we should try to cover a little bit of what's been going on. Right, right. And don't worry, you know, we had talked about this in last week's episode. We're still going to do a separate episode covering our personal experiences living through the financial crisis of 2008, like we mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, let's be honest, like knowing us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure we're going to end up touching on some of our own experience as we talk through current events as well. Yeah, I I can't really help but like go off on tangents about myself. (laughs) So uh, speaking of which, Jen, can I uh, tell you a little bit about what's going on in my life. I mean, even if I said no, I think you'd still do it. You I think yeah, I would. Of course. What's going on? So it is my, I can't believe I almost have a five-year-old. So it Aww. is my oldest daughter's birthday and we are oh, throwing a party birthday, for Catherine. her. Yeah. And so that's this Saturday. So she's turning five. Big deal. It but is a big deal. We talk about this a lot offline, <laughs> but just for fun, do you want to play a little game? The question is, what do you think the going rate is for a kid's birthday party in the city? Uh, one and a half hours, by the way, somewhere like nothing special just pizza like nothing special I mean listen I know that things are just outrageously expensive in New York City but whatever you're gonna tell me just so you know we rented out Ben and Jerry's for 15 kids by the way shout out to one of the moms at our preschool who recommended this she's a former wedding planner and I was like what the heck do I do for my kid who is turning five's birthday and she was like you should rent out Ben and Jerry's I was like this is either the best idea or the worst idea because we're gonna fill these kids up with ice cream and then send them (laughs) home to their parents at like 11 a.m. on a rainy Saturday but yeah so we rented out Ben and Jerry's for 15 kids for a birthday party that was like two hours of activities. They made cookies. They like tie-dyed t-shirts. There was an ice cream cake. We got pizza from the place next door and that whole thing, the tip and everything. But like the starting price was $250. Okay. Well, now I'm depressed. So what do you think it costs here? I don't know. You said 15 kids? Well, we need, so there's 17 kids in our class. We have to invite them all. And then there's two families. So call it 30 kids. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. A thousand dollars. 
No. <laughs> Not even close. So the starting rate for, I think, 20 kids is 1400 but that's Ooh. actually below market. That's below market. So market is more like 2000 and then it just goes up from there. So what each individual kid is like an extra 50 bucks. Each, and each adult each is Each like individual they, kid mm-hmm, is 50 each bucks? Each extra kid over the 20 Is and this a drop-off party adult, or is this like the adults have to stay? No, the adults don't have to stay, but a lot of them want to come. And then, by the way, then the siblings need to come. So it ends drop-off up- Drop-off birthday parties are the are best. Are the best. Oh, Oh my gosh. When you make that transition, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. What am I going to do with all this time? And I know you mm-hmm. are like, oh, now I'm going to hang out with my other two kids. But like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> once right, your youngest right. is going to drop off birthday parties, you have leveled up in your parenting career. I am excited for that. So we are. Where are you doing, doing it? So it's this place nearby. It's called Genius Gems. And it's very academic, but it's very sparkle forward. So they're A going to be. Sparkle academic. It is very sparkle forward. You decorate magnetiles with lots of sparkles and they're oh, making cute. slime. But oh. there's like lots of sparkles. Oh my God. Okay. We have a very serious, dedicated slime protocol in our house. So if slime comes home, which slime tends to do, like one parent has to distract the slime bringer homer Mm -hmm. to provide Mm -hmm. cover for the other parent to like quietly dispose of the slime before it ever comes inside the house. In an unrelated story, by the way, I perpetually have like an entire rainbow colored collection of slime like Mm -hmm. awaiting disposal in one corner of my garage it's like the stuff that gave Alex Mack her superpowers like did you watch that (gasps) show The Secret Life of Alex Mack on Nickelodeon that was my favorite show as a kid right I love that show it had the girl from 10 Things I Hate About You Mm -hmm. yes it was on Nickelodeon what was her name Larissa Larissa Olenek was that it was that her name I don't know if it was Olenek we have to look this up after we definitely have to look this up I I loved her I feel like she had like major star power I and know. then like does she was she ever in anything I ne- after 10 things I hate about you I never saw her I, I don't think so nothing that I saw anyway no, but, but I yeah I agree. I wanted to be Alex Mack when I, was I did little. too <laughs> we're <laughs> like the same did we we're know the, that maybe I, I didn't think know so. that about you I knew that you loved Buffy and we both like wanted to be like Sarah Michelle yes <laughs> yes but this was way before Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. oh yeah this, yeah, yeah this like, was this yeah, was like five six. years before Buffy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. by the way also great show you know I know we need to do an entire Buffy episode we do of like can we, we explain do. the private equity world through the lens of Buffy the Vampire We're going to have to figure that out with like Spike. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. But no, for people listening, they're like, I can't believe this crazy person is throwing her kid a $1,400 birthday party. You don't have a choice because I actually asked to rent our rooftop where we own our apartment in this building. And they wanted $700 just to rent the space, just to like have a party on the roof. And so you're kind of between a rock and a hard place if you live in the city, because it's like, do I not throw my kid a birthday party? Which I did for my three-year-old who just didn't do a party for her or do I just suck it up and have to pay a lot of money for it well it makes genius gems sound like a bargain by comparison Um, exactly but that's one of the things that's so tough about New York City and and I think we do need to do a dedicated podcast episode uh, maybe not on Buffy the Vampire Slayer (laughs) but on like the kind of just like the relative trade-offs of the jobs in these different cities because Mm -hmm. so many people talk about or complain about the high cost of living in New York but it's like okay why are you in New York well you're in Mm -hmm. New York to gain access to these high paying jobs well why do you need these high paying jobs to afford the cost (laughs) of living in New York City, right? It becomes this like super circular logic. I mean, you're moving to Boston. We pulled the plug and moved to Charlotte 10 years ago. Right. And it's an interesting thing to think about. And there's no right or wrong answer, but it's just how do you navigate trying to find a place where you can maintain like some high quality of life? Right. And 
you know, make as much money as possible, yeah. right? Yeah. While you're still young and in like your maximum earning and years. Don't, and don't get me wrong. New York City is amazing, but the cost of living is definitely something that is... I just wanted to make it clear that I'm not this psychopath who's throwing her five-year-old a $1,400 birthday party. Because to anybody else who's listening, they're like, what the heck is wrong with this woman? It's like, no, I just don't have a choice. Right, right, right. But Today. back to what we were initially going to talk about. So we are going to be hitting on what has been happening with this whole regional banking crisis and a lot of the stuff that you've been hearing about in the news. And yeah. so, yeah. Jen, do you want to start us off? Because you were the one who did that First Republic and you had done a lot of research on. Well, yeah. No, not research. No, I, I literally made a five minute video just trying to break it down as simply as possible. I mean, yeah, it's it's funny. So we kind of need to set the stage and it's like, how far back do we go? Like from the dawn of time, mm-hmm. man has bartered with currency. Actually, right. I joke about that. But there's this Dr. Seuss book. They have that whole library of the little Dr. Seuss books that are mm-hmm. like Dr. Seuss adjacent. I don't yeah. think Dr. Seuss actually wrote these, but have you read that one, One Cent, Two Cents? And it's Mm-mm. about like the history of money. No. I actually learned a lot from, about like ancient bartering no. systems from I that rec- Dr. Seuss book. No, the one that I just got was the one you recommend about the stars. The Sneetches. The Sneetches. The Sneetches. Everything you need to know about society, you can learn from yes. the Sneetches. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, that there is a bigger backdrop here yeah. that we should probably discuss. But I mean, yeah. when did you even, when did, when did this whole regional banking crisis really register for you? I was not aware that anything was even happening. I remember I followed this one like finance social media account. It was like a meme account and they were posting about SVB, but it literally meant nothing to me because Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever even heard of it. Right. No, I had never heard of Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, of course, the second we heard about it, I was like frantically Googling. We're elder millennials. We use Google to find out information (laughs) instead of TikTok, which is apparently what our successors are doing. Don't get me started on TikTok. I am in a fight with them right now. They miscategorized my video that I spent a lot of time working on as a podcast video, but it has nothing to do with podcasts. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah. And by the way, once I started Googling Silicon Valley Bank, both you and I realized that we knew people who were working there. Yeah. Um, One of of our good friends, husband works there, was like an MD in tech banking there. it, It might be worked. Yes, yes, this is this is true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember actually because I was leading a five day training program at this large private equity firm. This was March six to eleventh, and very large um, private equity. Yeah, firm. very very large. <laughs> so Monday, March sixth, the chatter during the breaks, nobody was talking about it. If anything, people during were the talking about training. Session, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we would do nine to ten thirty, and then uh-huh. you do a fifteen minute break. So yep. the chatter was about Vanderpump Rules and the Scandal. Which oh, just so it we're was on, the same week yeah, that the Scandal. That it started March 3rd. By not that when, you remember the exact date. Not that date. I remember the exact date. By Wednesday, there was then rumblings of this possible run on the bank. And then by Friday, it was, it was like over all anyone Friday, could yeah. talk about. And people were really worried because for them, they're one, two years. You mean in, the people in your class. In the training. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes. The people, the, the students I was teaching. But they were like, is this the Lehman of this cycle? And oh, so it was really yeah. causing a lot of I can of imagine worry. if they were new mm-hmm. and just starting out at the firm. Yeah. But hang on. Wait, so if mm-hmm. we're going to if we're going to talk about Lehman, before we get to Silicon Valley Bank, we should probably do a quick overview yeah, that's of true. like the mm-hmm. greater set of economic circumstances to set the stage here for yeah, what's yeah, been yeah. happening in the past few mm-hmm. months. Okay, so here we go. Basically, we're going to try to do like the Cliff's Notes version here, guys. After the last major financial crisis in 2008, the Federal Reserve. Um, uh, Jed, are you going to remind us again that the Fed is an, an acronym? No, 
I wasn't going to. Although, like, while I'm here. No, I think people understand that by now. But yeah. So the Fed basically embarked on over a decade of Mm -hmm. extremely accommodative monetary policy. And sorry, for people that might not be super familiar with that, essentially it means that the Fed was keeping interest rates very low. So trying to encourage people to borrow money and then invest and like grow a business and boost prices. And so essentially you were given money. You could get money for almost free. It would cost you very little. Now, I mean, I guess something we haven't fully explained before is that the federal funds rate is a short-term interest rate. It is literally an overnight borrowing rate for commercial banks. So like city needs money. They can Mm -hmm. borrow from Bank of America at this interest rate. Right, exactly. So remember, the Fed only directly controls that short-term interest rate. Mm -hmm. In order to impact long-term interest rates, meaning borrowing rates for 5, 10, 30 years, and bring them down, the Fed embarked on a policy called quantitative easing, which we Mm -hmm. call QE for short, because we're lazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But remember, okay, so exactly. Remember the secondary fixed income markets that I was so excited talking about (laughs) in episode six? Okay, so what the Fed started doing is regularly conducting what are called open market operations, where they would buy massive amounts of mortgage-backed securities and long maturity treasury bonds. Sorry, Jen. Okay. I'm sorry I keep jumping in. I actually joke with Jen that she is too intelligent about things and we need to dumb it down or we call it kellifying because that's like how I speak. It's not dumbing it down. (laughs) It's just a lot. This is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's not dumbing it down for other people. It's actually dumbing it down for myself. Like you will (laughs) say stuff and I'm like, no, no, make it it so that I understand it. But so- I think that people understand treasuries, but mortgage-backed securities or Mm -hmm. MBS Mm -hmm. are something that I think a lot of people have probably heard of in the financial crisis, but honestly, like, might have no clue what it is. Right. Oh, you're absolutely right. Okay. No, 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 no. You're right. Uh, And I realize I I touched on this in the five-minute explainer I did, but Mm -hmm. I haven't defined it on the podcast. So, okay. Basically, banks lend out money to people like you, Kristen, when you bought your house, right? (laughs) Some bank gave you the money so you could pay for your house, but they don't necessarily want to stay in that long-term relationship with you (laughs) where they are your lender, they are servicing your loan, they are doing all that fun stuff for the next 10, 20, 30 years, however long you borrowed that money for. For us, it was 10 years. Not that anybody cares. So... (laughs) What they do is they take your mortgage and mortgages of all the other people they lent to, right? Susie and Joe and Ocean or whatever people are naming their kids (laughs) these days. And they have tons of these mortgages and they pull all those cash flows together. They package them up into a larger bundle and they sell that to somebody else. Now the loan is off of their books, so to speak. They don't have to deal with you anymore. They don't care about you, right? (laughs) They don't care about Ocean. They don't care about any of these people, right? So now they've gotten the cash from selling that pool of mortgages to somebody else, and now they can go take that cash and lend it out to more people and keep doing that fun process all day long. The process of packaging up all these mortgages, or really Mm -hmm. anything, packaging up any kind of bonds, is called securitization. Yeah. And you can securitize anything, car loans, regular loans, credit card debt, all these different things. Mm -hmm. But I do want to put a pin in that because this whole idea behind mortgage-backed securities or asset-backed securities is that when you package up these mortgages from people like all over the country, the risk that Joe defaults shouldn't impact the risk that Susie defaults. That was the theory, by the way. Turns out that theory was wrong because (laughs) when things go badly, it goes badly for everybody. And so that was a huge, 
huge contributor to the financial collapse in 2008, this default risk of a Mm -hmm. person not being able to pay back Mm -hmm. their loan. The reason for the financial turmoil today is actually for entirely different reasons. Absolutely. And so just so you guys understand what what Kristen's saying here, right? (laughs) Lending rules back in the day when we were growing up at around the turn of the millennium. (laughs) Okay. Lending rules were extremely lax. I mean, you even had things called no doc loans where Mm -hmm. literally lenders were underwriting loans where borrowers hadn't provided standard documentation about their income. So all of these lax lending standards led to a ton of borrowers being Mm -hmm. issued loans that they actually couldn't afford. So the second their assets, right, their houses dropped in value, they didn't have mm-hmm. enough cash or enough income to cover the carrying cost of that loan. They couldn't make right. their payments. They defaulted on those loans. Okay. Right. And because of these widespread lending standard issues, all of these loans were bad. It wasn't just one guy losing his job. Yeah. It wasn't just three people losing their job. These entire sets of securities were bad. After 2008, the lending rules became much more strict mm-hmm. so that there was less risk that the issuers of these loans, these banks, wouldn't get their interest and principal payments on the Jen, it is comical how strict it is. So we had a hard time almost getting a mortgage because we were moving states. And so my husband was getting this new job. And even though this offer letter essentially guaranteed Mm -hmm. what he was going to make, the bank was so conservative Mm -hmm. about how they would lend to him because he didn't have a history with this new firm. I mean, even though we had enough interest and principal payments to service the debt for like six, seven, I think, I don't even know how many years. The the point is it was so strict. Default risk is much, much lower now. (laughs) Thank you. Totally. And so sorry, we got off on a little bit of a tangent there. But that's a really critical point though for this whole financial crisis, 2023. It is not about people not being able to pay things back. So I want to make that really important point. Okay, so- so I think we're still in like, where were we? Because <laughs> on the Fed. Spring of 2008. So, okay, back to the Fed. So when they started this program of quantitative easing, they went to the open market and started buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And because mm-hmm. they're buying a ton of these things, let's recall like basic economic theory, demand goes up. So yep. therefore price goes up. And it's just like my Taylor Swift analogy from before. The more people that are buying, the higher the price is. So again, Taylor Swift tickets are $2,000. And I'm I not thought you used a toilet all. paper analogy last time. I was. Really I think hoping. I did. Well, we did <laughs> no, both. I'm just we did kidding. Both. I'm just messing we with did you. Both. Yeah. No, but exactly. When you have the Fed buying up all these long-dated bonds, the bonds go up in price. And if you'll recall from our fun little episode about how we call fixed income the upside down, mm-hmm. when bond prices go up, yields go down. So quantitative easing, again, or QE, was the Fed's way of de facto lowering long-term rates when they don't actually set long-term rates by employing (laughs) just this simple (laughs) supply-demand dynamic in the market. You know what's really sad? I knew this, and I've heard this so much, and I forget it every time until I hear it again. So I'm glad I know it now. Like how QE works? Yeah, that they don't actually set the rate. They have to go buy stuff. Right, exactly. Well, they set yeah. the Fed funds rate. They just don't set long-term rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, one thing you also may have heard a lot kind of out there in the ether and maybe not understood was that the Fed was, quote unquote, printing money during mm-hmm. QE. This is because, think about it, right? The Fed has to create new money to pay for these bonds. Mm-hmm. And now they aren't at the U.S. Mint, you know, like printing physical dollar bills, but that actually does happen. They are electronically depositing money in the accounts of the market participants, like aka mostly the banks, that are selling them these securities. And now that money can be lent at very low rates to encourage economic growth. 
all you really need to remember is that the Fed was working really hard to keep rates low and bond prices high, again, to encourage economic growth and investment. And they were increasing the amount of money just floating around for everyone. So the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time when QE was first initiated, uh, hopefully you didn't get this on your... uh, (laughs) I was already working at that point. That's right. I do think Um, I hammered it into my brother's head that he should know who that was. Because my brother was a 2008 grad, so he started in 2008 in the banking sector. Yeah, no, so the chairman of the Fed at the time was Ben Bernanke and everyone called him Helicopter Ben because there's this old Milton Friedman quote about dropping money from a helicopter to make people richer. Uh, It doesn't mean what people think it means because Bernanke mentioned it in like a 2002 speech well before any of this happened. But when he implemented the policy of QE to increase the money supply, everyone was like, oh, it's Helicopter Ben. Do you remember? There was all these cartoons of like him and helicopter dropping bundles of I don't know why I don't remember that. I actually was following what was going on then, but that's so funny. So now we all understand QE and what kind of like the greater economic backdrop of 2008 was. If you have not listened to episode two on commercial banks, I know it is not maybe the most exciting thing. I know it sounds so boring. Like what is a bank? Yeah, but but it actually is. It has a lot of good stuff in there. So go back and listen. But here's a recap if you haven't. Commercial (laughs) banks, if rates were so low, then like how are these commercial banks making money? Well, they were charging very little on the loans they were making, but they were literally paying out like zero Zero. on deposits, Mm -hmm. like nothing. Mm -hmm. And so if they were lending you money, let's say 3%, Jen, I know that was the number you used in that video you did, Mm -hmm. to buy your house or to start a business and then paying you, so the person giving them the money, only 0%, then here, Jen, this is your favorite, three minus zero is three, so they're making 3%. So they're still making money. I think that's the first arithmetic we've gotten right on this podcast. (laughs) Maybe, (laughs) yeah. We're going to keep it. So, okay, instead of parking all this new cash that fell down from your helicopter at a bank in a depository account, you're buying everything with it. Mm -hmm. You're investing your money. You're buying, I don't know, clothes or cars or houses and Mm -hmm. bonds, Mm -hmm. okay? And you're buying all the bonds because, hey, the Fed's just going to buy them from you Mm -hmm. at a higher price. So the prices of everything starts going up. Everyone's getting richer. What a time to be alive. (laughs) I know, seriously. And this all hits at this all-time level of insanity. So during COVID, which was QE4, so the fourth round of quantitative easing that was enacted since 2008 Mm -hmm. in order to offset this potential economic collapse that everyone thought was going to happen during the pandemic. So everyone's buying houses and taking out mortgages at 3% or below, and prices just start skyrocketing. I mean, literally, who would have ever thought when we were sitting there in March of 2020, who was ever Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is going to be the biggest boom to the economy. But literally, as a real estate agent, every house I listed had 10 Mm -hmm. offers in it and was going 10% over asking price, right? Or I was representing buyers and they couldn't get a house. They were like, here's my firstborn child. And people were like, "Mm, not interested. (laughs) So suddenly after all of this happens after 2020, it's kind of an unintended consequence of all of this accommodative monetary policy. The Fed suddenly remembers like, we have a a dual mandate, Mm -hmm. not just (laughs) to maximize employment, aka make sure everyone has a job, but also to curb inflation. And here we are now in 2021, 2022, mm-hmm. we're starting to get inflation readings, meaning the rate at which prices are increasing. Yep. We're getting inflation readings of 5%, 6%, mm-hmm. 8%. Mm-hmm. Yep. So QE is over. <laughs> we got to chill for a second. Yep. No more open market operations. Yep. Now the Fed has to start what's called a tightening cycle, mm-hmm. meaning creating tighter economic conditions yep. that are less favorable to growth in order to curb inflation. 
Yeah. And nobody likes this, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So in the spring, now we're in 2022, so mm-hmm. still last year, but that's when the Fed started hiking rates. Right. And so they raised that short-term rate. So every single meeting since March of 2022 until literally last week, they were raising rates from anywhere from 25 to 75 basis points. And and so just a quick reminder, because we're going to talk about basis points a lot. A lot. I feel like yeah. we've never actually defined it. So a basis point is just one one hundredth of a percent. And sorry, one fun little fact, you could actually in Excel convert a number to a basis point by doing number percent percent. Yes, instead of just doing everything in normal calculations like everyone no, does. It's in- cool. You just take like a 50 and you go percent percent, boom, you got a basis point. <laughs> you Sorry. love Excel shortcuts. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basis points, because we're talking in percents, we're already talking in fractions. Yeah. Basis points are basically the major unit of calculation in the bond world because we're talking in such small increments. So when you think yeah. about it, you're talking about point. Oh, one for 1% already. So mm. when you're talking about itty bitty increments, you don't want to be like, oh yes, the market moved by 0.0000125. Like, no, you just be stumbling over zeros forever. Yeah, just seriously. Say, it moved an eighth of a basis point. And that's how we think about it. So anyways, yep. here we are now. We finally, after mm-hmm. half an hour, have gotten yeah. back to today to what we were going to talk about. Okay, so it's the spring of 2023. Rates have been rising for a full year. Whatever. Eggs cost $11. Aaron mm. Rodgers is going to the Jets. It is a weird time for humanity. Okay. Yeah, no, and here I am sitting at this private equity firm. And really, true story, I actually was talking about Vanderpump Rules with I'm sure um, you the were. students there. I, oh, I was, yep. Yeah. And then here now we have Silicon Valley Bank in equal measure by the end of that training. But yeah. yeah. So SVB, like all these other banks, these commercial banks that we've been talking about, they've got assets, meaning loans and securities mm-hmm. that they own, yep. and liabilities. And liabilities of their deposits. It's kind of counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people because Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I'm making a loan. That sounds like a liability. No, no, no. The loans that they make are their assets and the deposits they have on their books are their liabilities because they're paying out interest on their deposits. Even if it Yeah, was so banks long. are the reverse of everything. They're, Anything they're that's all backwards, reversed. I feel really comfortable Yeah, Jen's with. like, these are my people. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so the securities that a bank specifically SVB owned, a lot of them were U.S. Treasury bonds. And yeah. they had these really low coupons on them because remember, they were issued in this low rate regime. Yeah. So back to our bond math, mm-hmm. when everything's backwards. When rates go up, the prices yeah. on outstanding bonds and loans at lower interest yeah. rates go down. You know, Jen, because this is when some stuff with bond math clicked for me. And I always understood the basics of bond math, but Mm. never that you could lose tremendous amounts of money on something safe like a U.S. Treasury. And so I was always more focused on this corporate finance side of things Mm -hmm. and never gave much thought to the U.S. Treasury market. Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, it's like, oh, well, there's no risk. It's risk-free. We use that risk-free rate in calculating our WAC and the cap. So it's risk-free. You can't lose money on it, except for, oh, yes, you can. Yeah, exactly. I think (laughs) they taught us. Yeah. For all I know, that might be a common misconception. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. But yeah, to be clear, the risk-free nature of a U.S. Treasury bond is that there's theoretically no risk of the Treasury defaulting, mm-hmm. meaning being unable to pay back the loan. We talked about that in an earlier episode. Yeah. The value and again, that- hopefully, because debt ceiling crisis, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't anyway. even know what to say about the debt ceiling crisis because at, we've. this is how never many happens. times have we done this? Never the happened. definition of insanity is doing yeah. the same thing over and over again and expecting Well, it's never result. actually defaulted before. They've never not resolved it. I, I know, I but say. like, Let's is see. this going to be the time? I don't know. I know. Like, should right, we right, really right. get all spun up? I don't yeah. know. Assuming the U.S. Treasury is not going to default, <laughs> that's where we get the risk-free right. nature of these Treasury bonds. Mm-hmm. The value of that bond 
it's subject to the exact same market forces as everything else. And it can right. go up or down, right. no problem. And SVB, their portfolio of bonds of treasuries and these like super safe mortgage-backed securities were collapsing in value. And so there were all kinds of gimmicks that they could do. And this is like some accounting. Accounting the, fuckery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you have bonds that you expect to hold on your books until maturity, you don't actually have to show the price going down. Meaning and mark so, to market. Exactly. Mark to market or held to maturity, depending on there's rules that are put in place. And this is something that I like teaching accounting 101. Never would have thought that this was something that actually is interesting and more relevant to life than maybe it ever has been before. But so it basically put them into this bucket of things that we're going to get paid our money back. We just have to wait another 30 years. In their case, it was actually only three. I think there was like three-year bonds. Sorry. Yeah, it was a cool trick. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cool trick, except what happens if you need money now and you can't Mm -hmm. wait until these bonds mature? And that's exactly what happened to SVB. Because remember, two other things are happening simultaneously as rates go up. Not just is the value of these securities that they own at lower interest rates, the value of those is going down. But also remember, a couple of other things are happening. So a large majority of SVB's depositors were tech companies. Mm -hmm. And after having an awesome run for like the past decade, the tech sector actually started to fizzle last year in 2022. So a lot of the tech companies who had huge cash balances in deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, they were burning through that cash just trying to stay alive. So SVB's depositor base was starting to shrink for secular reasons. Yeah. And secondly, the Fed has hiked interest rates. And so depositors now want to be paid something for their cash more than the 0% that they were getting. can't just pay out zero deposits. And so SVB needs to start paying out more. Now it's paying more than what it's receiving on the interest income from these old loans or the treasuries that they own. Mm -hmm. And investors are also probably going to start taking their money and investing it elsewhere. Right. And And it becomes uh, like this perfect storm. Deposits are going down and SVB needs to raise cash. So they liquidate a big piece of their treasury portfolio at a loss. Mm -hmm. They lost like $2 billion in value on the sale of that portfolio. Right. And that was something to me that was just crazy. I know, Jen, we were talking about that. Like, you can lose $2 billion on these like super safe treasuries. but You can um, lose as much money as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Not because of default. Right, right, right. But look, so now what they need to do is an emergency capital raise. Like, they need to find $2 billion of new funding and suddenly people who are in the market, so specifically this important big group of venture capital firms, they get wind of this and they're just like, whoa, hold up, these guys are in trouble. And so they peek behind the curtain and they look at this bank's book and they say, wait, let me get this straight. You don't have enough money coming in from your underwater investments and you don't have enough deposits going forward to cover your losses on these investments you've made. And now you want us to give you more money to help you shore up this gaping hole? Yeah. Like, so <laughs> these venture capital firms start telling the tech companies that they invest in, who were the depositors at Silicon mm-hmm. Valley Bank, that no one wants to lend this bank money. Mm-hmm. And these depositors are like, ah, get my money mm-hmm. out of there. Remember, everything over 250 k per person per account is not insured by the FDIC. So if you are a tech startup and you have your yep. payroll sitting at SVB, you're not going to be able to pay your employees. Mm-hmm. So this is what starts that run on the bank where depositors mm-hmm. pull out all their cash and investors start making bets that Silicon Valley Bank will no longer be in the business of taking deposits and making <laughs> loans and bam, the bank goes under. RIP, SVB. Right. 
So listen, if you've ever Jen, watched. Jen, do all banks go to heaven? <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. So if you've ever watched The Last of Us or World War Z, mm. you know that once you nope. see one crazy incident of a person turning into a zombie, there's mm-hmm. likely more contagion to follow. Right? Yeah. No, I, I don't like zombie movies. I like your analogy. I will not watch those movies. I'm but, sorry. You know. I know I should have stuck to the Nickelodeon shows. I just couldn't think of anything that applied to the banks. <laughs> well, no, the good news is that you can watch all those shows. I hear they're they're fantastic, specifically The Last of Us. And you can report back and tell me what happened because I don't want to see the dead bodies. I don't want to see all the gore. You can tell me what's going on. <laughs> we're, we're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> so back to our friends at SVB. So mm-hmm. listen, after SVB goes under, everyone looks at all the other regional banks mm-hmm. and says, okay, who is in similar trouble? <laughs> and the bank that looks the most concerning to start is First Republic Bank. But First Republic is actually a little bit different. Rather than having a client base of like just the rich tech startups, they actually have a client base of like super high net worth individuals. Think like just really rich people, like Jen in her video. It's like Kardashian level rich. Right. And remember when I was talking about all those things that people were buying during the latest quantitative easing cycle? Mm-hmm. Remember I said houses? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've got a bunch of rich people buying houses. Mm -hmm. And listen, we know a lot of extremely wealthy people, they pay cash for their houses. But if they aren't paying cash, Mm -hmm. it's banks like First Republic who are lending them the money and maybe giving them preferential rates versus other rates because they want people to keep their deposits there. Exactly. Now, remember, like we said earlier, most of the loans that banks make as mortgages get securitized. Mm -hmm. However, in order to qualify for that securitization we talked about earlier, loans have to conform to certain criteria. They have to be within a certain size range. So typically much smaller Mm -hmm. than the loans that these super rich people are taking out on their homes. Okay. They have to be a certain structure Mm -hmm. and they have to meet certain criteria for the creditworthiness of the borrower. Probably not an issue in this case, but just something I want to note. Yeah. And because the First Republic bank clients are taking out much larger loans, like if you're buying a $30 million house, you're not going to take out a $500,000 loan. Mm -hmm. You're taking out a much larger one. But so a lot of these did not conform to the requirements for that securitization. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them are also structured probably a little differently than those conventional conforming loans. And so when people take out a mortgage and borrow, say, like $500,000 at a rate of 3% and agree to let's pretend they do a 30-year mortgage, they pay it back in 30 years, Every month for the next 360 months, they're making regular payments of both the 3% interest and a portion of the principal on the loan. So that $500,000 is getting paid back over Mm -hmm. time. That process is called amortizing. So it is an amortizing loan, meaning you are chipping away at the total amount of the principal over time rather than paying it all down at the end. When you do that, it is called a bullet payment. Amortizing. I like Jen's amortizing somehow means like dying in French. Yeah, M-O-R-T, like mort means Mm. death, like muerto in Spanish. Got it. I missed that when you said that. I looked it up after and Mm -hmm. I was like I don't see that is she wrong Jen's never wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah but a lot of the loans that First Republic Bank was issuing they didn't look anything like that okay Mm -hmm. a lot of these were interest only loans we call them IOs for short (laughs) meaning you don't pay down the principal in tiny chunks during typically the first seven to ten years of that loan Mm -hmm. in the IO period okay and these loans typically don't get securitized because they have such different characteristics than a conventional loan where like Kristen said you're making those regular monthly payments of both interest and principal from the get-go yep and so now let's just think about these mortgages for one second so in America not in all countries, but in America, you have the option to refinance your loan if rates go down 
Or if you want to take out, say, like equity in your house. What a great country. I know. (laughs) So if I took out a 3% mortgage and rates go to 1%, well, guess what? I can go call up my bank and say, hey, I want to refinance my loan. And now I only have to pay 1% on this new mortgage on the same house. Yes, ma'am. And kind of sucks to be the bank. No, but it's great. great, It's great to be a person. Exactly. There. Uh, but if, as in our case here over the past year, rates go up, you're sure as heck not going to refinance your loan. You yeah. are thrilled to be paying 3% on your existing mortgage when everyone else getting a new mortgage has to pay 6%, right? So, Sucks to you be know, me. <laughs> listen, you're in your house that you bought in 2020 and maybe you don't like your kitchen, but you're not going to go buy a new house just to go yeah. get a new kitchen and have to pay 6% on the whole house. You're going to call mm-hmm. Joanna Gaines because I like fix her up. <laughs> right, right. So under normal circumstances, if you have a 30 30-year loan, you probably aren't going to be staying in that house for 30 years. So people will sell either because they have like kids and they need to get a bigger Mm -hmm. house or a spouse gets a new job. Mm -hmm. I mean, or you are refinancing because rates have gone down. But the point is that the average life of a 30-year loan might only be seven to 10 years. Exactly. uh, Not 30. Mm -hmm. And in the environment where interest rates are rising, as we're discussing, the average life of those loans is going up. Up. Mm-hmm. People are not prepaying those loans because they're not moving and they're mm-hmm. not refinancing. They just bought their house in the most expensive housing market of all time. They're not selling anytime soon. Mm-hmm. All these loans are extending in their average expected life. Yeah. And so, Jen, we actually should probably now discuss like how this impacts the value of First Republic's portfolio of loans. Exactly. So because First Republic Bank has all of these jumbo loans and IOs that can't be securitized, they have them on their books. These mortgages are worth less as rates go up because, like we said, the bank is only receiving whatever it was, 3%, when they could be getting 6% on new loans. Yeah. But there's this now additional wrinkle to uncover since we understand a little simple bond math here. So not only are these loans worth less as rates go up, but like we just said, they are extending in length. People aren't refinancing and paying them back because they don't want to refi at a higher rate. Yep. So the bank is losing money on these loans and they are losing more money faster because the loans are extending and getting longer durations. And this is what Jen has explained to me recently is called a negative convexity trade, which I know you're going to do on a video. I'm still Um, trying to tackle duration in a video. (laughs) I did it with muffins. The muffins melted. (laughs) It's been a a struggle, guys. All right. I was not cut out for life as a social media person. I can't. We're going to try to explain it on social media, but yeah, listen, we're not going to, we're not going to explain how negative convexity works on a podcast. So we have started doing little explainers on our social media if you're interested in learning more. Yeah. And we want to be really clear about the mechanics of all this. The bank isn't losing money or wasn't losing money (laughs) because people were defaulting on their loans like in 2008. It's the Mm -hmm. opposite. Yeah. These loans are extending. They're staying around forever. (laughs) I'm going to be in this house until I die. You're going to have to bury me in the backyard. Right? So That is a really common misconception, and we've gotten so many questions about that, about what's going on with the current regional banking crisis. It's not an issue of borrower creditworthiness. It's an issue of the value of the portfolio going down without adequate hedges in place to shore up the risk. And now listen, there are, yeah, remember, hedge means offset. And there are ways to hedge this risk in the market, but clearly First Republic Bank wasn't doing it. (laughs) So now here we are, post-Silicon Valley Bank, 
Investors and market participants are taking a look at First Republic Bank's assets, this portfolio of underwater mortgages and other loans. And now they start making bets that First Republic is going to suffer the same fate as Silicon Valley Bank, just for slightly different reasons. Equity starts plummeting. All right, First Republic Bank needs to raise cash, but guess what? They can't liquidate its portfolio of assets to raise that cash because they're going to take a huge loss. So depositors start pulling their money. They saw what happened with SVB. They're like, I'm not getting burned again. And as people pull their money, right, First Republic stock price goes down. So I think it went from, what, 150 to like $3 a share, mm-hmm. virtually wiping out the equity in the company. The government steps in and what's left of First Republic Bank, namely this portfolio of assets and the remaining depositors who stuck with them, that was sold to JP Morgan. And now this process is continuing. Mm-hmm. It's not just... Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, everyone is scrutinizing the regional banks looking for more that have similar positions to these small regional banks that just went mm-hmm. under. So over the past week, you've probably heard names like PacWest, Comerica, or Zions Bank, right? Like mm-hmm. every single market participant is looking at them closely to see who's next. You know, with no end in sight, right? You can't just sell every regional bank to one of the big guys like JP Morgan or Wells or Bank of America. They can only take so much. And so it becomes a really slippery slope. Right, which um, is why so many market participants are now betting on, you guessed it, the mm -hmm, Fed. mm -hmm. So at the very least, I think most market participants at this point are expecting the Fed to pause its current hiking cycle and stop raising rates. A lot of people think they're going to stay on hold for a while. Some think that they might start lowering rates or even start another round of QE. I think it would be like (laughs) QE5, right, to restore order to the markets. Hopefully this has been a helpful little special episode, a special report for you to get your feet under you when it comes to the topic of the regional banking crisis in the spring of 2023. Um, And so now you can go sound smart around all of your friends and say, you know, the regional banking crisis uh, isn't a function of default risk. It's more of a convexity issue. (laughs) You'll be so much fun at dinner parties. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We are going to occasionally do episodes like this when we've got a critical mass of questions about something and it's worth more than just like I don't know a three minute TikTok (laughs) video explainer (laughs) yeah absolutely oh and also um so this week and actually tomorrow we are recording our first interview episode and we have some just like really unbelievable interviews lined up that we'll be releasing in the next few months or probably during weeks when we can't record a live podcast like when I'm moving right I'm so so excited for you um yeah but we definitely need to have some of those interviews banked because uh there will be times when we're just not able to get on and record a live podcast podcast. And so that will hopefully make sense if you hear an interview and it's like, this was recorded three weeks ago. And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, till next time, guys. Um, Thank you as always for listening and uh, keep the questions coming. Questions at wallstreetskinny.com is our email and you know where to find us on social media. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 